exciting episode for you today hopefully maybe let's just see what we got for you so i ran across this article online called the five most important developments in hip-hop production um i came across it on the isotope website it was written by daniel dixon so we're gonna go over this article and i want to see what y'all think about it i'm gonna tell you what what I think about this particular order, order, article talking about what were the five most important developments in hip hop production. Because, you know, when it comes to this, it all kind of p- depends on perspective. You know, we can see we've listened to we've watched a lot of documentaries. So I was curious to see if this person named Daniel Dixon, what he actually knew about hip hop. Because the name does not imply that he knows very much about hip-hop. And to be honest with you, my real name doesn't imply that I know a lot about hip-hop. That's why this is called J to the O. But anyway, I digress. So let's dive right into it and let me know what y'all think. Some kind of way, either go to the YouTube channel, leave a comment somewhere which is youtube.com slash j to the r you can go there on that particular channel if you've listened to this podcast any amount of times or maybe you found the podcast from the youtube channel i do beat tutorials i do uh live streams of me making beats i uh i let y'all listen to some of the completed songs that i've done uh, we just have a good time over there. I like the listening. I like reading the comments that y'all leave, whether good or bad. Um, it's all fun. But anyway, let's dig into the five most important developments in hip hop production. So the first thing that he says, number one, were the New York block parties. Now, he goes on to say that documenting hip-hop is tricky. And depending on who you talk to and what you read, you know, the origins may differ. You know, that's pretty much what we already know. But one thing is for sure, the block block party is organized by DJ Cool Herc in the Bronx, New York City during the 70s. That they were pivotal in the development of both the genre and culture. I agree with this 100%. There was nothing like... The videos are uh, now in the 70s. That was a little bit before my time, so I can't even really comment on that too much. That you just have to depend on the documentaries that you watch or whatever to really see. You know, that's history even for me. So I know a lot of youth today probably has no idea who DJ Cool Herc is, but I do know who he is. Obviously, I ain't that young, but I ain't that old. To be to have been around to really understand what was going on back then. <clears throat> so, way back then, it was inspired by the dance hall environments and toasting witnessed, witness and toasting witnessed in the hometown of Keystone, Jamaica. 
Now it goes on to say that Cool Herc would extend the break section of a funk and soul song by switching it back and forth between two copies of the same work record while engaging the dancers using the mic in call and response routine. Or hit the mic. Now what he means by that is the, the, the DJ would have the same work record on two different record players. Then at that point, he would go back and forth, switching it, by switching it back and forth, scratching, doing everything he can, getting it hype, getting it crunk, using those two, two using those two instruments. Because back then, a record player was used as an instrument, not just for playing music. That's what getting crunk and hype was back in the early 70s. So then it says that the collaborative style of DJing developed Cool Herc and later perfected by DJ Grandmaster Flash and MC Curtis Blow. Now we're getting into the age of when I really came up listening to rap. And it says that that became the blueprint for hip-hop production. Now in 79, a string of records considered hip-hop were released, bringing a sample-based sound from New York's African-American community to music shops around the world. Yes. Now everybody's heard of rapper de- rapper's delight. If you don't know what rapper's delight is, then I don't know what to tell you. You may want to start over here, reset, and go back to the basics. Rapper's rapper's delight was a song made by the Sugar Hill Gang. It was inspired off a sample riff from Chicks Good Times. It's the most notable release from this time. And in addition to becoming one of the most successful hip-hop songs, and it charted in U.S., Canada, U.K., it also began the still topical debate on authorship and ownership in music. Chick will eventually sue Sugar Hill, Sugar Hill Records for copyright infringement, of course, because that song was huge. And if they weren't making no money off of it, they need to make money of it. And, you know, that's true, you know. And the rapper Grandmaster Cash accused the group of stealing his lyrics. Which was probably the case. That's a man. So as you can see, even in the very beginning, it's been drama and hip hop. Oh my god! But that type of drama, if it wasn't worked out then, a lot of the issues that they have then, we would still be having today. Now, it goes on to say that although some 1970 hip hop productions included backing musicians, the turntable was the main instrument. Which is pretty much what I said earlier. So that's true. And that was, uh, you know, they used to stitch bits of existing sounds together. And they would use that stuff kind of like, you know, they would make samples. And essentially, that's what he's saying. They would make it samples into songs. Now, that was number one for the five most important developments in hip hop. But if you ask me, I mean, I guess you got to say that one was number one just because it's the foundation. But to me, this one, number two, probably should be number one because it changed the game. And that is drum machines and NPCs. (laughs) So in 1980, Roland introduced his drum machine called the TR-808. And when I tell you that particular drum machine, it quickly became the hip hop drum machine. So instead of relying on break beats, producers could now write original drum patterns, speeding up the production process. Break beats. 
what are breakbeats? Breakbeats was when a uh, DJ would take this record and it would have like a drum drop in it. They would use that loop as the as the drums for that particular song, and they called them breakbeats. So it's really just a sample of a drum pattern from a song that they would use as the foundation for a rap song. Well, now when they came out with that TR-808, they didn't have to do that. They didn't have to do that at all. Because in that bad boy had deep 808 bass drum sounds, which was also desired for a solid performance on club PA systems. It used to hit real hard. Syncopatic syncopated 808 drum beats paired with original and sample synthesizer sequences form the basis for electro electro hip hop hybrids like warps nines nunk so yeah when that 808 came along man it changed the game totally it was a whole new sound and I, I mean I, I just can't can't begin this is around the era when I really started to get into, well, I take that back. A lot of these instruments, when I first started producing, these are the instruments that you had to have. And boy, were they expensive. Now, it goes on to say that hip-hop's love affair with the 808 is still strong today, which it is, because trap music, every trap song has an 808 in it. So most people don't even know what, what 808 came from. But like I said, it was the TR-808 that Roland came out with many, many moons ago in 1980. And still today, most hip-hop is going to have some type of 808 kick, snare, and hi-hat. That real crisp hi-hat that you hear, that comes from the TR-808. Claps, TR-808. Those high-pitched snares, TR-808. That's what those sounds come from. Now, after the TO808 came out, Emu is spelled E-M-U. Most of you probably ain't even heard of that. They came out with the SP-1200. It was released in 1987 and was one of the first commercially available and affordable digital samplers. Now, that T, that Emu... <laughs> that emu 1200 came out people lost their minds now the one thing about it is back then those samplers you didn't have that much sampling time you only had maybe like four seconds to get the job done and it was a very low sampling rate i think it was like 26.04 kilohertz but that pretty much formed the gritty new york hip-hop sound between probably like 1985 to 1995 now one year later Akai, A-K-A-I, introduced the first MPC, which was the MPC-60. And it became hugely popular drum machine among hip-hop producers due to its long sampling time. Again, like I said earlier, that um, that SP-1200, it only had like 2.5, I think I said 4, I think, it, but it was really like 2.5 seconds of sampling time. Now, most of y'all are probably thinking, what am I going to do with 2.5 seconds of sampling time? Well, I tell you, you can do a lot. Because uh, I had a sampler called an ASR-10. And it had, I think it had maybe 12, 13 seconds. This MP60 had 13 seconds. So, uh, 13 seconds, going to 13 seconds would be the difference between, how can I put this in today's term? It would probably be the difference between going to a... 
a iPhone with eight eight gigabytes to an iPhone with sixty to seventy gigabytes. That's the best I can do. But anyway, so that that thirteen second was considered a long sampling time. And that NPC-60 also has a unique sonic character. It had real-time programming capabilities. And DJ Shadows, DJ Shadows' use of the NPC-60 to produce almost his entire album in 1996, I think it was called End Introducing, it elevated the sampling to an art form status and spawned the instrumental hip-hop movement. So you can kind of start to see how all of this is starting to come into play. And while sampling had been explored many years earlier, like Pierre from people like Pierre Schaefer and Carl Heinz, Stahl Heinz, and, and even the Beatles, it hadn't been used to create entire songs at mainstream audiences. So when you start talking about that drum machine, especially the MPC, when the MPC came along, you had that emu sp1200 you had the uh tr808 so if you had if you, if you had in your arsenal that rolling tr808 which was extremely expensive if you were trying to buy one in like the 90s if you can even find it if you find if you can find one now goodness gracious you probably pay about 40 grand for it just because it's like a piece of art but anyway if you had that that Roland TR808 and if you had that SB1200, boy, boy, you was killing it. And the thing about back then, too, you had to figure, you didn't really have no whole bunch of MIDI type stuff. So you had to kind of try to figure out how to get that sample in tune with that TR808 so they both could be in the same tempo. So now... He goes on to say in uh, for number three. Now, this is probably, I mean, I don't really know how much this plays, but I mean, you have to include it. It is the rise of, of the gangster persona and that particular sound. He goes on to say by the mid 1980s, hip hop had dropped its funk influences, which is true. And it, and it turned toward a rock for both style and samples. Punk gu guitarist turned Def Jam producer Rick Rubin drove this change. If you don't know who Rick Rubin is, lick him up. Lick him up. He's kind of like an icon for the development of hip-hop and Def Jam, which is one of the most popular, influential record labels of his time. I don't even know if it's still around. I'm sure it is, but they ain't putting out shit. Anyway, it goes on to say that his sparse productions blended hard hipping, hard hitting guitars and turntablism, pushing artists like LL Cool J, Beastie Boys, Run DMC, and Public Enemy into the mainstream success, which is true. And it was funny. If you ever seen Rick Rubin, look him up, Google him. You'll be like, this dude, this dude right here was doing that. It's kind of funny. So, um,. Sonics aside, the music made by Ruben during this time was intended for mainstream audiences. So, unlike the lengthy early hip-hop tracks intended for DJs, because the early stuff was intended for parties. DJs. DJs did block parties 
So you could have a song that was tremendously long because you want people out on the dance floor. And a lot of that stuff was done on the fly. But instead, Rick, Rick Rubin, his stuff was between like three to four minutes. So he could easily get airplay. The politically charged lyrics and aggressive sound design explored in the records above, you know, from LL Cool J, Public Enemy, Beach Boys, Run DMC, they laid the foundation for what was called gangsta rap. Perhaps probably best summed up by NWA's album, Straight Outta Compton. Now, before NWA, you know, you had. I mean, there was always been pretty much gangster rap, but when NWA came, I mean, because if you look back at some of the, um, I digress a little bit, but if you look back at like uh, EPMD, uh, Eric B and Rakim, that battle rapping, I mean, it was a lot of this stuff was like battle rap type stuff, but. You know, it was it, a lot of this stuff was gangster too. But when NWA came along, they took it up a notch and a half. Oh my God. So most of NWA's production was handled by Dr. Dre. I'm sure most of you, everybody already know that. We don't even have to go through that. And because Dr. Dre, Dr. Dre changed the game when it came to came to production. 1990s hip hop was dominated by the feud between artists from the East Coast and West Coast. We know that, which was Death Row and Bad Boy. The whole feud between Tupac and Biggie. I mean, that's when the East Coast, West Coast, man, if you, I'm from the South. So, you know, that was the good part. I was from the South. I didn't have to pick a side. I listened to both. You know, if you, if you living on the West, you don't want to get caught playing no east coast music you leaving on the east you don't want to get caught playing no east no west coast music but in the south we listen to it all did nobody care about that shit and still don't to this day we just like good music now number four is what he called in this article the daisy age yeah this was an interesting point that he made because I never heard of the Daisy Age. And basically what he's referring to by that is it's a catch-all for chill-out 1990s hip-hop that was either criticized or ignored gangster rap. And it was pioneered by New York-based groups like Tribe Called Quest and De La Soul. I never heard of Daisy Age, but I've never referred to Tribe Called Quest or De La Soul as a Daisy Age group but you know whatever player and the reason why he called it that was their music was characterized by electric sampling experimental sound design a wide range of lyrical topics including spirituality activism and technology so because they had open mind they was considered daisies ain't that some bullshit I can I consider that the real, you know what I'm saying? Because life is more than just gangster. It was more than just partying. It's about all of these things. So you got to use all of it, and you know, it's about your your full self. But whatever. On a tribe calls Twist Quest sophomore album Low End Theory, which was released in '92. 
producer Q-Tip was praised for his high quality production. He used laid back bebop samples. So today we consider that, and even back then, we consider that as, as, as East Coast. So to our ears, it was pretty much the same. You know, that was kind of like the foundation of a hip hop East Coast boom bap type sound. And he goes on to say why it was lighthearted and a quirky style of hip hop only remained popular for a few years. It was set the foundation for the transition from gangster rap to the introspective, stylistic, broad music of Kanye West and his peers during the early mid and early and mid 2000s. I mean, I could see that relationship there. More people was trying to. This is when you start getting the Midwest, the Chicago rappers coming out with just regular, just music. Almost to the point to where it was. If you ask me, it was in this transition is where it was going to turn to more towards like pop. You know what I'm saying? He says that the expanding taste of music consumers due to Internet music sharing, it made made it easier for hip hop artists to find success, exploring new directions and narratives. Kanye's winning of 2007 album sales competition with 50 Cent is representative of this. Hip hop came to accept influences as far ranging as indie, gospel, electronic, and classical, new tempos and atmospheres to the genre. It's not to the point that we came to accept it. it the music came along and we liked it. It's not a point of accepting. You know what I'm saying? It came along. We liked. We liked it. When uh, NWA came came along, that was different. We liked it. It's not accepting nothing. I don't really understand that. Then he starts to bring in talking about the popularity of Eric Erica Badu and Lauren Hill, and how they had that smooth neo soul, which was a descendant of R&B, with a strong female presence. That was an alternative for male artists uninterested in the hedonism of hip hop to explore a more vulnerable theme like heartbreak. Um, I consider those two. I don't know if I really consider Erica Badu, Lauren Hill, definitely hip hop. I mean, that's that's she's not not neo soul. I, I guess you could consider Lauren Hill neo soul because she, yeah, I can get with that. So the next, the next uh, point that he made was Atlanta's emergence of hip hop hub as a hip hop hub. Atlanta's emergence as a hip hop hub. Yeah, yeah, that did definitely play an important part of it. Because while most of the attention given to hip hop from the 70s and 90s was focused on New York, by the 90s, mid 90s, Atlanta was emerging as a powerful new industry player. Probably from 94 to 2004, you had Outkast, which was a which was like their influences was like all over the place, and everybody just again it wasn't about accepting them; it was about something different and something that people actually enjoyed. Because they experimented with like unconventional sounds. You know, they use historically Southern style instruments like a harmonica, the, you know, that harmonica sound that they used on Rosa, Rosa Parks. I mean, that shit was phenomenal. 
So while Outkast earned its success and praise among critics, it was the trap movement that really put Atlanta on the map. Beginning in like 2001, you had Young Jeezy, Gucci Man, T.I. They presented a dramatic synthesized form of hip hop built around the 808 drum, sub, sub 808 bass, and crazy percussion feels. Again, we go back to that TR-808. So way back from the 70s or the 80s, rather, people today in 2001 and even today are still using them 808 sounds. So all you do is producing trap beats that just that be downloading them 808 kits and just think 808 is a just that's an 808 kick and kick and just stop right there as far as, as, far as the thought. That sound has been around for years. So what you're using ain't nothing new. It's been around for years, Playboy. So some consider trap as a revival of West Coast gangster rap, given its occupation with Atlanta's crime and drug trade. Naturally, the genre received heavily scrutiny from the media. Because when, here's how it works. You get this, this genre, which is, just like the gangster rap so now this is about crack it's about selling drugs because that's what they did that's what they're talking about west coast was about gangster stuff you know what i'm saying it was about rapping your street trap music was about cooking that white you know what i'm saying so and it was insanely popular and it was taking over the suburbs as well as the hoods. When you start getting in the suburbs, that's when problems start happening. So perhaps more interesting than the music itself was the way it was marketed. Trap artists took full advantage of the internet to distribute their music, often releasing multiple albums independently for free within short periods of time, driving a lot of interest and sometimes confusion. With this, the barriers to enter, music, enter the music industry was lowered, and it was a change that made it possible for all manner of music artists to quickly achieve and also lose fame. Now, you can't talk about Atlanta without talking about Lex Luger, who just stopped. You know, he was a powerhouse. Will made it. Metro booming. All of them changed the game with how they did beats. It's just as simple as that. All these trap stuff. If you didn't have these three artists, especially Lex Luger. Most of y'all probably don't even know who Lex Luger is. And that wasn't even that long ago. There's a whole story behind why he quit. One person they didn't mention is Southside, which is a part who, who is and still do beats. But Lex Luger, come on. Killed the game. With trap beats listen to some of that old future stuff oh anything it was crazy 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 so those are kind of like the top five um what the most important developments in the evolution of hip-hop most of them i agree with some of the uh some of the the uh, information he used to prove his point in the article you know, it was kind of questionable, but all in all, I think it was a pretty good article on talking about some of the five important things. But having said that, if it was me, I would also include the Houston 
South South side type of uh, rapping. Talk, you know, the Paul Wall. The uh, uh, I mean, they said nothing about, which I think also is an important aspect of the evolution. Is like the uh, I don't even remember what you call this shit. Like the Luther Campbell, Luke Skywalker. That he sparked a whole new style of beats in itself. And if you ask me, like Luther Campbell. Uh, aka Luke Skywalker, get get live crew or two live crew. I mean, shit, damn, I can't remember the name of the group. To me, that changed the game, and that kind of paved the way to the whole Atlanta type, uh, you know, rapping and beat making. So, you know, you kind of got to include them into the picture as well, because when you got to include them and almost anybody anybody like from the south that had their own way of doing stuff such as the houston houston rappers the whole um shoot uh all of them record labels down there in the south you know they changed the game and those influences are still going on today you know like i said you you had you had paul wall you had mike jones i mean you can go all the way back to the, the ghetto boys all of that was around that same time and kind of changed the game. But anyway, I think I bored y'all long enough. So I'm going to holler at you. Hope you enjoyed this podcast. Go check out my YouTube channel, J to the R. You just do that search if you can't find it. Or if you don't even want to look at YouTube to go there, go to my website. You can find my podcast there. And you can find most of my YouTube videos. And that is jtothear.com. This your boy. Thank you for listening to Making Music with J to the R. Peace. Mm -hmm.